This episode is titled, Reading Marvel's First Issues. It's truly mind-boggling how writers Stan Lee, artists Jack Kirby, and Steve Ditko could have produced so many iconic characters that are still loved by millions to this day, all in the span of just a few years or even months in the mid-60s. On this episode of Pull List, I'll be discussing my impressions of the first issues that introduced the team that started it all over at the House of Ideas, the Fantastic Four. Then, I'll be mentioning some characters, mostly villains, that did not stand the test of time, with the dozens of memorable characters Marvel created in the early years. There were bound to be some clunkers. Now, Fantastic Four, I'll talk about the thing's look. In the first issues of FF, the thing's head just looked like a lump of mashed potatoes. A lump of, well, actually sweet potatoes. Uh, I wondered when he would evolve into the blue-eyed, ever-loving thing that I love from my childhood to today. It evolved over the first 45 issues, but by issue number 15, the thing's look had mostly settled into the thing I know and love today. By the time that the long-running thankfully long-living inker Joe Sinat became the regular inker on issue number 45. Kirby reportedly began penciling the thing in this now familiar look for Sinat. While Sinat is to me and many others the definitive inker for the FF, I'd like to quickly mention the inker before him, Chick Stone. I really like the distinctive style that Chick Stone used. He was liberal with the ink on the outlines of his characters, so much so that it looked like the strong lines in coloring books are in cell animation. I know that must sound like a criticism, but it's far from it. I thought it looked sharp, and it really highlighted the characters. I feel like now that I've seen it, I can pick his work out of a lineup of other inkers. Also, I wondered if and when they would explain where Reed Richards got the money to buy out most of the Baxter building and create the elaborate spaces they lived in, including a secret elevator and a silo for their aircraft slash space rocket. It only takes until issue number nine, published December 1962, when the Fantastic Four go bankrupt. The repo men start showing up, taking their planes and rockets away, and the thing yells at Reed Richards for losing all their money in the stock market. Turns out it was as I'd guessed. Reed had gotten his money from patents and government contracts. Their chance to get out of debt comes when a movie studio wants to give them a million dollars to start a movie. It turns out that the studio is owned by Prince Namor, the Submariner. They show in flashbacks how over the centuries Namor's been looting sunken ships and watching from the water as pirates buried their treasures. Though Namor's plan to destroy the Fantastic Four doesn't pan out, he is contractually obligated to pay the Fantastic Four. Action and financing have never been so well dramatized in a comic book before. Though that was not a tagline used by Stan the Man to sell this comic book. Or any other. Never been a big fan of Namor. He's just meh to me. I respect how he straddles the line between villain and hero, though. His obsessive attempts to woo Storm get a bit repetitive to me, though it's an interesting relationship triangle between Sue, Namor, and Reed, at least in the early years of FF. I'd also like to mention here that when I was a kid, I always wanted to have hair like Captain Kirk or Reed Richards, which is a prime example of careful what you wish for, kids. 
I didn't know at the time that Shatner was wearing a toupee, and I'd end up bald on top with gray on the sides. <laughs> villains that didn't become household names. Let's talk about a few villains that didn't quite stand the test of time. Every comic has them, even the best that Marvel and DC have to offer. Debuting in The Amazing Spider-Man, issue number 10, published March 1964, The Enforcers, created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Three men hired help for more goal-oriented mob bosses. There's Montana, master of the lasso, cowboy hat. There's Fancy Dan, short, modest purple zoot suit, if that's possible, master of judo with a D&D rogue style. He definitely maxed out his dexterity. Ox. Guess what he was built like. Then there was a co-worker of Peter's at the Daily Bugle named Frederick Foswell, or the big man, with a mask like the bartender in It's a Wonderful Life, only carved out of a pale block of butter. These characters have appeared at various times in Amazing Spider-Man and Daredevil throughout the decades, more than our next villain, Paste Pot Pete. Piss Pot Pete? Pot Packin' Pete? <laughs> I find it hard to even remember his name, and I just read the comic. Paste Pot Pete sprays sticky goo on people. Don't worry, it's from an air gun he's packing. He's the original crazy glue guy, I guess. In issue number 38 of Fantastic Four, published May 1st, 1965, PPP gets a new costume and gets tired of his stupid name. So he becomes the villain formerly known as Pastepot Pete. He changes his name to The Trapster. No, not Trapstar. The Trapster. But he'll always be old Pistpot Packin' Pete to me. Sadly, Two of the Frightful Four are wearing purple jumpsuits with purple helmets, making it difficult to know which is which sometimes. Piss Poor Pete is one of them. The other is the wizard, who changes his name to the Wingless Wizard. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't. Okay, his teammates are not impressed. Okay. Somehow, in my mind, he decided for a minute to call himself the High Flying Wizard in the last issue he was in. Might have just been a fever dream of mine. The defining difference between the two is the wingless wizard's... Uh, I'm just going to call him the wizard from here on out. The wizard's helmet, which looks like a helmet from Spaceballs, the movie. Only, you know, purple. Also, the wizard has a powerful control over gravity, whereas the trapster has a powerful control over adhesives. The third member is Sandman. Now, he did stand the test of time, who's wearing a purple shirt, but he's easy to spot, mainly because it's a striped t-shirt instead of a onesie like the other two. You'd think I'd love this gang with all the purple going on here. Since they're trying to be an evil version of the Fantastic Four, and they need a, a counterpart to the Invisible Woman, obviously, the wizard recruits a redhead that can attack people with her long hair named Medusa. Later of the Inhumans fame, she's also wearing a purple uniform. She was introduced in December 1964 in FF issue number 36. Since the wizard is the mastermind behind this gang, I guess he was the one that chose the team color. Maybe with some input from Piss, Pack, and Pete, but I doubt it. The wizard was always reminding them of his dominance, despite the fact that everybody beats the Wiz. I can already picture future members of the Frightful Four after these ones get thrown in prison. Grape Ape? The Wonder Twins, Gleep, Booberry, 
and Grimace. So at least two of the four made a name for themselves in Marvel history. But Sandman was already introduced in Amazing Spider-Man issue number four. Couple thoughts on uh, Amazing Spider-Man first issues. His first appearance was in Amazing Fantasy number 15. Hence, that's where they got the amazing from the Spider-Man name. Uh, They asked people in the letters section in the first uh, several issues if they should keep amazing or not. Uh, Thankfully, they did. Um, In his first issue, Spider-Man has an ability to track down specific people using his Spidey sense. It's a questionable ability and possibly overpowered, and it is quickly phased out in further issues. I'm guessing they started getting a lot of mail from readers questioning it, and or Stan realized that it made some things too easy for Spidey. Glad that they replaced it with Spidey trackers. In issues 25 and 26, Spider-Man calls them, among other things, my spider pin tracing gizmo. That was placed on Foswell's hat, a.k.a. the Crime Master. Allegedly. Then there's X-Men. X-Men issue number 14, Trask and Sentinel's first appearance. When Sentinels shoot their beams, the sound it makes is ZIT. That's uh, capital Z, capital I, capital T, capital T, exclamation point. ZIT. Professor X has a live debate with Trask, defending mutants, while the professor pleads for understanding. They show people's reactions as they watch it in a television store window, sitting around with their families, too. My kid could never be a mutie. Where does he get off calling us ignorant? You know, uh, reactions like that. This whole debate and the reactions to it by listeners and viewers uh, came off to me as actually contemporary to reactions in politics today. And with that, that's it for this episode of Pull List slash Arthur's Mega Podcast. Um, thank you for joining me and please like, subscribe, uh, and let me know any uh, if you have any comments, questions, suggestions for future episodes. Um, and don't forget, support your local comic book shop I'm blessed with two amazing comic book shops where I am. Uh, I have Richie's Comic Cabana in Waterbury, Connecticut, and also Legends of Superheroes in Oakville, Connecticut. Find a comic book shop of your own, or if you're near me, stop by Richie's Comic Cabana or Legends of Superheroes. You'll be glad you did. Let's do this again real soon. But until then... Happy trails.